And uh, as I contemplated what to focus on, God just kept bringing to mind Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, when I was growing up as a kid, when we would decorate the Christmas tree, my dad would play the Handel's Messiah. And I mean, it's like, I don't know, 20 records, like he had records, you know, record set. And it was a bunch of them, but we'd try to play through those. And one of the most famous songs in that's the Hallelujah Chorus, which utilizes Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 as some of the lyrics for the song. And it's so powerful. You know, this prophecy of Isaiah regarding the Messiah and who the Messiah would be and the roles that he would fill. And so I thought, man, uh, we need to focus on that this year. And one of the key names for the Messiah, the roles that he would fill, is Prince of Peace. And we certainly need to hear a message uh, of peace in our day, in our era, in our time. And so uh, this week we start off with verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 9. If you want to turn there in your Bible, we'll kind of be focusing in on this, um, on this passage and looking at this prophecy of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7. Those who walk in darkness will see a great light. Let's pray together as we get started. God, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for um, who you are, for what you do and have done for us in this world. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to align ourselves with the truth of who you are, the reality of what you've come to do, and the reasons that we need you in our world. And I pray that you would help us in this season as we end this year. It's been a difficult year. I pray that you give us hope once again. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, Jesus came to fill a number of roles. Uh, This passage says that he was a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so we'll be looking at those names, but today we start off with the beginning of the, of the passage which says, those who walk in darkness will see a great light. Jesus is our Savior. And for many of us uh, who have put our trust in Christ, we know that he came to be our Savior. But there are other roles. Jesus really is, uh, came to establish the kingdom of God. He really is much more than just Savior, though that's perhaps the most important thing, but he's also the leader that we need. We need to have direction and vision. We need to have instruction. And so he offers to us to be our leader. That's why Jesus is called the head of the church. He is the one we're to look look to. So often we look to and we want an earthly leader, a human leader, right, of some kind. But God, from the very beginning, uh, from the moment that he started uh, and created the human race, he's offered to be our leader and our guide. Um, following Jesus in every, every way means looking to him for leadership. And in this series, again, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, we'll look at the great roles that the Messiah came to fill and the direction he came to give his people. Isaiah, as a prophet, uh, he uh, lived in the nation of Israel, obviously a Jewish man. His name means the Lord saves. And so literally he came with a message of salvation. And so it's no coincidence that he has many messianic prophecies are found in the book of Isaiah. He lived in the seventh or the eighth century, which was the 700s. Um, he was a prophet during the last three decades that the northern kingdom of Israel uh, existed. He was the son of 
of Amoz, and he prophesied about both Judah and Jerusalem. He served during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were kings of Judah. The messianic prophecies, perhaps most well-known in this book, come in Isaiah chapter 9, which is the one we'll be looking at. Also, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and Isaiah 53. Uh, Those are some of the most famous messianic prophecies. Again, a messianic prophecy was a prophecy in the Old Testament about the future coming of a Messiah. And Jesus came and fulfilled those prophecies. Isaiah wrote this particular prophecy over 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled all of it. He describes a situation in a world faced, um, that the world faced actually in the time that Jesus came and the response that many people would have to Jesus. See, Jesus would come to bring hope instead of despair. Let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 together. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. This, these, these uh, couple of sentences uh, contain within them uh, some deep and profound uh, information about the time when Jesus came to the earth. Galatians 4.4 tells us that God sent Jesus at the precise moment in human history when he, would, uh, when he was uh, needed, when he would have the greatest impact, when his work would uh, have the ability to spread and be shared, and when he would have the opportunity um, to do the work that he came to do. And so this moment in time, according to the precision of God, you understand that as God looks at us and our existence in this universe, we exist inside of time and space. Right? We don't know anything else but time and space. And so time governs our existence. And yet the truth is that God exists outside of time and space. He created it. And so as he looks at the human race, as he looks at our existence, it's very different. He sees it all at the same time. Right? At once. He can see the beginning and the end all at the same, uh, from the same posture. There is no difference to him. The difference is for us inside of this universe. And so for God... As he looks at our existence, as he, uh, as he sovereignly oversees it, we've got to understand his perspective. Jesus actually began his ministry as he came to earth in fulfillment of this very prophecy. Matthew chapter 4, we find these words written by Matthew regarding Jesus' fulfillment of this prophecy. Starting in verse 12, it says this, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judah and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Nephtali. This fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Nephtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River in Galilee, there were where so many Gentiles live. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadows, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach Repent, your, uh, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Got to remember that from the time that God created mankind, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the human race has struggled to stay aligned with God. And God, it seems, has been in a constant struggle to win over the hearts of his creation. 
He made us in his image and he made us with a freedom, a bit of free will. And so we choose what we want, who we want to love and where our affection is going to go. And so God, it seems in some weird way, though he created us, is constantly battling to get our hearts, right, as, as human beings. And we see this throughout um, the existence of the human race. It's a constant struggle. Humans have been resolved in the inclination to turn from God and to follow other leaders in other ways. We have, turned, we have even made, uh, in the past and currently, made false gods. As Romans 1 says, uh, we have fashioned gods, right, in, in the image of animals and of created things, and we want to worship those. And so there's this struggle and battle. And this tendency to move away from God leads to darkness and decline, as the book of Romans lays out. The human race always goes away from submission to a good, benevolent God and trades it for enslavement to, impression, to oppressive leaders and systems. It's just the nature. It's our nature. It's what we do. And this prophecy is regarding a time when Jesus was sent by the Father to the earth. The time Jesus came to earth, again, was the precise moment in human history when it would best highlight the work of God and make it most possible for the message of Jesus to spread. It was also a very dark time in human existence. The nation of Israel had been through many uh, hundreds of years of oppression. God had put them under judgment, and so they had been taken captive and had been spread around the world. Uh, the Jewish dispersia, it's called, where the Jews were spread around the world, partly because of persecution and financial economic reasons. But they were not in Israel primarily, the land that God had promised them. And so they found, they found themselves at this time, when Jesus came, under the forced rule of the Roman Empire. And Rome was not a gentle, kind ruler. Um, they they uh, enforced on the Jews um, many things which went against their belief system, their belief in God. Hope is perhaps the most powerful need that we have as human beings. Without hope, we will die. Our need for hope is greatest when it looks the least likely. G.K. Chesterton said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, Hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. We're currently in the midst of a great strain on our world, on our country, on our region. With the focus so intent on this virus or plague that faces us, we watch with hypersensitivity to the daily reports of its spread and its toll. We've been under this strain for over eight months, and it's wearing on us heavily. I'm hearing of conflict sparking up everywhere. I see some of it. But it's put us under pressure. We're in a pressure cooker. And it's causing strain. And that strain is being seen in our relationships and how we're handling things. Perhaps we're more aware of the darkness of our world this year than in a normal year. Perhaps the need for hope is greater because we're struggling to see our way through this. During the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, a German pastor named Paul Gerhardt and his family were forced to flee from their home. One night, they, they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid. His wife broke down and cried openly in distress. He comforted her with, uh, by reminding her 
of the scriptural promises about God's provision and keeping. Hey, God's here for us. He's going to see us through this. And then he went outside in the garden and broke down as well, feeling that he was perhaps at one of his darkest moments of his life. Soon afterward, though, Gerhardt felt the burden lift and a sense uh, anew of the Lord's presence. And he took his pen and he wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many. He said, the, the lyric says this, give, the, give to the winds thy fears. Hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. Though, uh, though waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time, so shall the night soon end in joyous day. It is in the moments of greatest stress and pressure when we need the reality of the hope that God gives us. When Jesus came into the world, the Roman Empire led a darkness, spiritual darkness, pervaded the land. The Roman Empire uh, promulgated and, and, and pushed kind of a pagan religion, a belief in a pantheon of gods. As they would conquer peoples, they would add their religious beliefs to their belief system. And most people had no direction or hope they went to temples and offered sacrifices to demons and to idols, right? They had no connection to God, no knowledge of God. And even the Jewish people had turned a faith in God, a belief in God, a system that was meant to attach them to God. They had turned it into a, a law-based religious system full of uh, rules and regulations that Jesus said, you guys as leaders can't even follow this. It was an oppressive time. Economically, it was difficult. Yes, Rome brought peace to the world, a forced peace, but it was not prosperity. And so they were under struggle. They were under oppression. I know that during this season, uh, we've talked about as a, a leadership team, and I've talked about it with some of the folks in our church, that some of our senior saints have not been able to attend church for some time. And certainly others have not been able to come here. Those that have some health conditions, they've just got to be careful and cautious. And we understand that. But we know that some of our senior saints who just haven't been able to be here, some for getting close to a year. Um, others have been on and off. But we know that it's a struggle. And we've talked about as a team and as a, as a leadership that we want to communicate that we haven't forgotten those folks. We love you. We care about you. If you're watching online, I want you to know that as a church, um, we, we haven't forgotten that you're there. And we love you. And we know that God's going to see us all through this. But we're praying that your heart, your soul, your spirit um, would stay strong. And we want to be an encouragement to you. During this season right now, with the escalation and cases in our areas, we, we certainly don't want you to come to church right now. Uh, as much as we want to see you. Now is not the time to come, and so we, would, we want to encourage you to continue um, to uh, take those precautions. But remember, there'll be a time when you'll be able to return. We will get through this, and so uh, I want to encourage you in that way. Don't lose heart. Don't despair. God is working for a solution. We must continue to look to him for light in the midst of darkness. The fear of death is great. And so the hope of healing and restoration has got to be greater. How do we keep our hope alive in the middle of difficulty? It is a simple principle to keep hope alive. It's a simple thing to understand, yet it's extremely difficult to live out. It's hard to put in practice. 
It is so tempting when things get difficult to focus on the difficulty. I can't tell you how hard it is not to just see the problems, right? It's so difficult, and yet we must learn, right? We must grow, we must mature to be able to keep our eyes on Jesus, on the light, in the midst of the darkness. The story's told about two wives that were at the laundromat doing their laundry. Both of them were mending their husband's pants. So you know this is an old story. Doesn't happen much anymore. But they were sewing, uh, you know, put some patches on some holes in their husband's pants. And so they're sitting there talking, and one wife says, you know, uh, my husband's so miserable. You know, uh, things are not going well at work, and, and it, everything's a struggle and a strain. Comes home and and uh, tries to watch TV. There's no good shows on. Again, this was an old story when there weren't so many good options on TV like we have now. <clears throat> that was sarcastic. Okay, so, so, um, so it's like, you know, nothing good on TV. So our home is just, is just miserable. We go to church, and, and the worship leader uh, it, it does a horrible job, can't sing a good song, can't lead us in worship, and the pastor's just an idiot, doesn't say anything helpful, and, and we're just miserable. And the other wife said, well, you know, my husband's uh, pretty happy in general. We enjoy our time together at home. When we go to church, uh, we worship together, and we're lifted up and inspired by the, by the worship, and the, the preacher has good messages, and, and overall, we're just encouraged. And it uh, got kind of quiet in the laundromat. They didn't talk to each other. They just kept sewing these pants. It was interesting that one wife was patching a hole in the seat of the pants, and the other was patching holes in the knees of the pants. Sometimes we sit around and complain and think about the problems and negatives, and we get focused on them, and it's easy to do when we should be wearing holes in the knees of our pants, praying and talking to God, going before him with our problems and struggles. So often, well, every time, he will redirect our thinking. He'll redirect our minds to the good. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 says this. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. Trials help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Look, again, we can know. (laughs) You've heard it a million times. You've read it a million times. Here's the process, right? Difficulty, struggle, leads to uh, developing perseverance, which builds my character, which then gives me, uh, allows me to have a stronger faith and to ultimately have a stronger hope. And that's the process of maturity, right there, maturity. And maturity is the only way that we get to the place where when things get tough, we're not shaken by them. We're not taken into the pit of despair by them. We're not panicked over them, but we actually have the ability to walk through them with confidence because we know that our God is with us and he will not fail to bring us through, to give us the solution, to provide us the strength to walk through the struggle. And so it's hard though. I'm not standing up here saying that it's easy 
or that I have it all figured out in that. There's, there's situations I still fall into, right? And so I have to be reminded of this, and we do all as well. Both persecution and a depressed economy had led many Jews to leave the nation of Israel over uh, the land of God's provision. As I said, the dispersia uh, had spread Jews all over the world. This had led to an overall decline of the nation of Israel. The, the best of their people were not there. Isaiah points to the disobedience of the nation of Israel and the re- their rebellion towards God that led to this decline. He also prophesied that Jesus the Messiah would bring growth out of decline. Isaiah chapter 9, let's read verse 3. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. So listen, there's a time of growth coming. God, or the Messiah, right, is going to bring expansion. He's going to once again enlarge the nation, bring prosperity to it. Where it has been in decline for hundreds of years, there's going to be a reversal. There's going to be a time of hope that's coming once again. And people are going to rejoice just like when the harvest comes in and it's a big harvest and everybody celebrates because we're going to make it through the next year. We've got provision. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be like warriors who uh, go and invade and win and they're, they're dividing the plunder amongst themselves because they, they've won. They've benefited. They have more. This is what it's going to be like. Growth out of decline. As I said, years of decline had plagued the nation of Israel, largely due to their disobedience to God, either by their leaders, some of their kings had lived in rebellion to God and disobedience, and and oftentimes just the people themselves had rebelled. Following King Solomon, uh, you'll remember there was uh, King Saul was the first king of Israel. God rejected him because he didn't have a heart for God. He was a rebellious king. And so God established David as the king, and David had a heart for God. And under David's rule, the nation of Israel grew and prospered. And then David's son came to power, Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived. And he led the nation in a time of prosperity financially, a time of peace. And, uh, and the nation grew in wealth and prominence in the world. But after Solomon died, the nation was divided into the north and south kingdom. This division created a weakened country, which was then susceptible to invasion. The people also turned away from God. And so in 722, the Assyrians came and defeated the nation of Israel. They invaded the northern kingdom and deported many of the best to uh, parts of their kingdom to work. In 586, the Babylonians came to power, overthrew the Assyrians, also attacked and invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, deported thousands, perhaps 10,000 of the best leaders and young men out of Israel, and and Nebuchadnezzar utilized them in um, in his regime. Hundreds of years, the nation of Israel had been separated Though the king of Persia, Cyrus, allowed them to go back and rebuild the, the city and rebuild the temple and some things had taken place. And under the Maccabees, they had a few years, perhaps a hundred years, where they were able to live in freedom in the, in the nation of Israel. In 63 BC, Rome conquered Israel and appointed a puppet king, Herod, who we read about in the times that Jesus walked the earth. This was the situation the nation of Israel had lived in. 
All of this held Israel in a, in a deep decline. They were not able to establish themselves and prosper. And Isaiah states that the Messiah would bring a time of growth back, a time of unity, a time where there was the ability for them to uh, live as they were intended because God's intention was that they would be a nation, that they would be independent, free to lead themselves as they saw fit under God and his authority. But Jesus would bring a season. The Messiah would once again enlarge the nation. No king since the time of David, and David didn't even do it, had led the nation of Israel to occupy all the land that God had promised them. And so they looked for the Messiah to come, to set them free from the oppressive rule of Rome and, or whatever nation that was, that was oppressing them at the time. They didn't know when the Messiah was going to come, but they knew he was going to do this. They looked for him to be that leader and to bring hope once again of the restoration and growth and expansion. Israel had been a powerhouse militarily under David. He was a warrior. And he led them to, to defeat their enemies and to push back those who were trying to take them over. Solomon, as I said, led them to be a wealthy nation. But no substantial growth had taken place in hundreds of years. Isaiah provides the promise of once again a time of prosperity, a time of, uh, of expansion, the hope of realizing growth instead of decline. You know, growth and expansion in life doesn't come without hope. <laughs> we first have to see the possibility, believe that the time could come. Without that, we live in a depressed state where we ourselves won't even work and move to expand. Expansion takes energy. It takes a positive sense of, uh, of where we're at and what the possibilities are out in the future. Hope leads us to look forward and to begin living today out of a brighter future that we believe will come, that we have the hope will come tomorrow. The day Isaiah is projecting is a day when the hope of the nation of Israel would return, when the faith in a better uh, tomorrow would take root. There's a saying that we hear, <clears throat> that I've heard my whole, most of my life, that you're either growing or you're dying. You're either expanding or you're shrinking. We have the opportunity today to begin once again to believe that God would restore our nation. We know that our nation was founded uh, by Christians who were following God and sought to see a country come to be that would be a place where there would be the freedom to worship God. Europe, where uh, uh, the, our forefathers came from, was a place where government and church were united. And so government had become... a. a had controlled people from a religious, a religious standpoint. It was oppressive. And the people that came to this country wanted that freedom. And so this country was, frowned, uh, was founded with that type of freedom. And we watch, those of us who uh, love God and, and see what's happening, we watched our country, just like the nation of Israel, turn away from God over the years and look to other things and want to establish us as a different country. And so we have this opportunity, we have this choice to make as Christians. Do we believe that God will continue to move to protect this country and to return it to himself? We've seen over the years times of revival in our country. And yet we can lose heart. We can lose hope. Right? We can begin to think it'll never happen. And we're just headed for destruction. And yet I think, just like the nation of Israel, 
we have an opportunity to believe, to trust, to see that God can and will work, and to look to him first and foremost for our hope. There's a saying, or excuse me, we have, we have that opportunity today. It's in the middle of darkness that the light shines the brightest. If our country gets darker, our light will shine brighter. We've got to look to Jesus first to save our land, to save our communities, to save our homes. Isaiah speaks to a weakened nation of Israel about a time in the future when God will move powerfully to restore them. To me, the tie to Jesus, the Messiah, right? Isaiah's prophecies regarding the Messiah and the ties to Jesus bring his words to some relevancy for us. Yes, this was spoken to the nation of Israel, a prophecy regarding Israel uh, that Jesus fulfilled in a, in a specific time in history. And yet I think there's some, there's some application to us because of the role that Jesus played in the world and the role that he plays in our lives and the role that he's played in the, in the life of our country. You may be tempted to look elsewhere for your hope. Political leader, scientist, medical professional, wherever it is that you think there's going to be hope for your future, to bring you a sense of security, bring you a sense of hope regarding the future. It can be tempting to do that, but I don't know anyone in any of those fields that knows God and loves him that doesn't understand there's a limitation to what they can do. I know people in the medical profession, doctors and nurses, who understand there's a limitation to what they can do to restore someone's health and to help them. And they recognize those that are believers, that God has a greater power. And they've seen God do things in that arena. Politicians as well. Um, to be honest, most of our politicians do not care that much about us. They don't really care about making our lives better or helping us in any way. And yet we so often look to them. Not saying that we don't need them. We do. But we've got to be careful where we look for our hope. One of the strongest messages of Isaiah is, uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 40, and it, it contains a verse that is used a lot, but I think it has relevancy for us. I think it does apply to us in our country. Isaiah, starting in verse, uh, Isaiah 40, starting in verse 29. Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel about returning to God, returning their hearts to God. It says this, He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. With God on our side, we cannot fail. God will bring the growth out of decline. When the world around us shrinks in fear, we can rise in faith. The confidence we can have in our God gives us the hope, right, when decline is felt all around us. Donald Barnhouse, an old preacher evangelist, told this illustration regarding this principle of do we have the confidence in the resources that are available to us? He said, uh, come with me to an underpass outside of one of the freight yards in our uh, great nation, great railroad centers. There are two or three men there. And again, this is years ago, but there's, there's two or three men there. There's a hobo, a vagabond, a tramp, right? These men that live um, on the trains and, and get around. They don't have jobs. They don't work. They have no resources. One of them says, hey, I hope 
that within a year I'll have a million dollars. Another one says, I hope in, in a year I'll have two million. And finally, a third says, I hope in a year I'll have 10 million. And yet between them, they have about 43 cents, right? That's actually what they've got. And he said, then let's go to one of our large banks in New York, one of the paneled rooms where business takes place. And in that room, there's a call for expansion for the country and a need for about $60 million investment to, uh, to build a new chemical plant. And a DuPont, right? Someone from the DuPont family says he'll put up $15 million. And then a Rockefeller agrees to duplicate that sum. And then a Ford and a Mellon nod their agreement, and the matter is settled. But you ask them, gentlemen, do you really have money like that? They nod with assurance and say, we know that we have it. You mean you hope that you have it, right? We question. No, they replied. We know we have it. There's an ability for us to live with confidence in our God. We must have faith, right, in him. We must see and believe that he exists. We must keep our eyes on him. But he is the source of the power and strength we need to move through this time of difficulty into the future that is hopeful, that is bright, <laughs> that has expansion as a part of it and growth. And we can continue to believe that our God has that future for us. Or we can get caught in the despair, in the struggle, in the difficulty. I want to argue to you that from the time that Jesus walked the earth and founded his church, that he has called his people to live differently. When the Roman Empire fell, the church stood strong. It became the hope of the people uh, in the world when there was no other hope. We have the ability to provide that kind of direction, that kind of confidence. But we've got to know the resources we have. We've got to believe that they're real and walk confidently in them. And then we can live today with the hope of where God is going to take us tomorrow. See, uh, God as our good, benevolent God, good Father, he offers to us the same thing that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would bring. He offers freedom instead of slavery. Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 4, let's read verses 4 and 5, saying this about the Messiah. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. And the boots of the warrior and the uniforms, uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. You'll remember in the book of Judges, maybe, there was a, a young, insecure young man who was an insecure guy named Gideon that God used to defeat the armies of Midian. And the armies of Midian looked like the sands on the, on the seashore. I mean, there were so many of them, thousands and thousands of them. And the nation of Israel was small and weak. And Gideon rallied together, right, uh, some, some troops to fight. And God said, no, that's too many. And he whittled them down to 300, right, you remember? And then they went to attack Midian at night, and God told them how to do it. And God actually routed their armies and brought the victory. And Isaiah is saying, listen, the Messiah is going to bring a time like that when the yoke of slavery is going to be lifted. He's going to break it. One of the most difficult battles the nation of Israel faced and Christians face today is the battle to believe all the time in the goodness of God. The goodness of God. We struggle with it. 
We struggle to believe that God's good every time. I've had so many conversations throughout my life with people struggling to believe in God. The actual struggle is to believe that he's good, that he did something in their life or allowed something to happen, uh, and he wasn't seeking to destroy them, that he wasn't neglecting them, that he wasn't actually actively working to hurt them. It's what a lot of people believe. And the nation of Israel struggled with this as well. They would turn to other gods because they were praying to God, God, we need this, we want this, and he wasn't answering them. He wasn't doing what they wanted. <laughs> and so, like little children do at times, when mom and dad won't give me what I want, right, they look somewhere else. They tried to look to someone else who would give them what they wanted. This is our struggle today. When things get tight, we have a tendency to panic. When the pressure hits, we have a tendency to look somewhere else. The nation of Israel was constantly being drawn away to trust in other things. We can face, as I said, that same struggle. When the bank account gets a little low, the financial pressure hits, we can feel that panic raising up in us, that concern. God, is God really going to answer that? Do I need to find another way? Is your marriage under stress? Are the kids rebelling? Health declining? relationships failing. All these things can cause us to be under pressure, and when the pressure hits, it's tempting to look somewhere else. And yet, every other ruler, every other option that we look to is a slave master rather than a savior. Instead of giving freedom, all of the other answers that exist in the world will only enslave us in some way. God alone looks to give us freedom because he cares about us. He genuinely love, uh, loves us. He created us. So we must, as Israel did, throw off that yoke of slavery. We've got to look to Jesus the Messiah to free us from the slavery that we find ourselves in so often. You know, a yoke was used to harness an oxen to get some work done. And uh, the truth is we're going to be yoked up to something or someone. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, through 30, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. You will find rest. Listen, you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. God promises to be the good father that he really is. And he calls us into relationship with him. All other promises are simply lies. Above the entrance to the concentration camp in Auschwitz, the, there were some German words written. The translation was, work makes free. It was an audacious promise. And of course, it was a bold-faced lie. Because the, the um, Jews who were in that prison camp would work hard the promise was if they worked hard, they'd be given their liberty, but the promised freedom was simply a horrifying death. All of the promises of freedom that you'll hear, you'll experience, hey, if you come over here, you're going to be free. You can do what you want. Nobody will tell you what to do, right? That's the promise of the enemy, ultimately. That's what the devil whispers to us, and yet he seeks to enslave us to sin. That is the reality. I want to urge you at this time of stress and pressure to look to Jesus once again. Look to him, first and foremost. Doesn't mean we're not aware of other things in the world and, and other situations, but he's gotta be number one. He's gotta be the one that we look to above all else. 
and understand that he really has the power to change things. If you'll do that, and if I will do that, we will find hope instead of despair. We'll find growth instead of decline, and we'll find freedom instead of slavery. Jesus is the Messiah who came to set people free. This Christmas season, 2020, we need to look to him again. It's been a tough year. It's been a difficult year, one with a lot of uh, losses and struggles. But if we look to Jesus, we can find hope in our hearts. We can find growth in our lives. We can find freedom in our spirits. God, thank you so much for your goodness. You are a good father who loves us. You created us. Father, I pray you'd help us once again to look to you, to keep our eyes on you, to listen to your wisdom and direction as we live in this world and as we make decisions about how to handle things. God, I pray that you would help us to see the hope that you have for us and look to you so that we can have the freedom that you offer us. God, thank you for being so good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.